So what I'd like you to do is just imagine a scene. Now, when I, in this scene that I, I see in my head, it's hot. We're in a desert, and the, the sun is like beating down, and it's dry, and it's dusty, and you're actually kind of looking up at kind of a, a craggly rolling hill, and you can see a cave. And the cave is in the distance. You're maybe a couple hundred meters away from it. And it's, it's silent. It's kind of a silent day. There's not much of a breeze. It's very quiet and calm. And you can hear the, the, the murmur of voices behind you. And you can hear some chinking of armor and movement of maybe like a sword and a sheath just, just shuffling around. And then all of a sudden, a man comes out holding a piece of cloth. It's purple. And it's cut. And he comes out on top near the entrance of this cave and he's looking down and he says, look what I have. What's in my hand? And his eyes are filled with tears and he's sad and he's shaking and he's yelling down at a man named Saul. The king. This is coming from 1 Samuel 24. David stood at the mouth of the cave and called down to Saul, My master, my king. Saul looked back, looking up. He could see this mouth of the cave. He could see kind of the hillside. He, Saul's face was one of shock. He had no idea anyone was there. He thought he was alone with just his men. This is a random spot in the middle of the wilderness. And here he was, and David, who was on this kind of higher, higher precipice here, fell to his knees and bowed in reverence. He called out, why do you listen to those who say, David is out to get you? This very day, with your very own eyes, you have seen just now in the cave that God put you in my hands. My men wanted to kill you, but I wouldn't do it. I told them that I wouldn't lift a finger against my master. He's God's anointed. Look at this. Look what I cut from your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Look at the evidence. I'm not against you. I'm no rebel. I haven't sinned against you, and you're hunting me down to kill me. Let's decide which of us is right. God may avenge me, but it is in his hands, not mine. An old proverb says, evil deeds come from evil people. Be assured, my hands won't touch you. What does this king of Israel think he's doing? What do you think you're chasing? A dead dog, a flea? God is our judge. He'll decide who's right. Oh, that he would look down right now, decide right now, and set me free of you. Saul was a king of Israel. And at this point, Saul was what we could call the failed king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel and, and a king that was kind of born out of chaos. A king that was born out of conflict. You see, if we go way, 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 way back to the beginning, God is walking in the, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve freely, communing with his creatures without any hindrance, without any problem. Sin creeps in, the serpent blames God. The people blame the serpent and each other. 
and this kind of fracture takes place. And from that moment on, God has tried desperately throughout the scriptures, throughout the, the narrative of human history, to, to reach people in their own language, in their own stories, in their own way, trying to kind of get at our hearts so we could be back in communion and union with God so that we could, like Adam and Eve, just walk in the comfort of the cool of the day with our creator without any barrier. And, but there's all kinds of things in the scriptures where people just do their own thing. God has to set them back on course. You've the flood and the Tower of Babel. And then, he's, and then God has to say, well, I'm actually going to choose a person named Abraham to come in and be the conduit for, for blessing. I'm going to choose this guy. And his family will sprout up into a whole nation. And this nation will actually be the light to the world. They'll show, this nation of my chosen people will show the world who I am through their behavior. God is trying over and over and over to find union with people. The people and the Israelites don't really want that. They're not interested. They're seeing the nations and the kings and the riches and the wealth and the, the, the sexuality and the way they live their lives. And they, they look at those people the, around them with jealousy and they say, we don't, we don't want to be really like that, God. We want to do what they're doing. And one of the big differences, God says, you will let me be your king. I will lead you and you will be different. You don't need a king. I'll be your king. You don't need to do what they're doing around you. Follow my law, and you'll be blessed. You'll be happy. But the people weren't interested. And so they got into conflict. And so God says, okay, I'll send you some judges. And not judges like courtroom judges, though some of them were, kind of residing over moral ethics and such. But these judges were like superheroes, warriors, defenders. And this is where you meet people like Othniel and Gideon and one of the most famous, Samson. God is raising up these judges to protect the people of Israel, to protect God's chosen people from invading armies. And they still don't want to follow the law of God. And that time in history gets darker and darker and more and more conflicting until the tribes of Israel are actually warring against each other. And at the end of the time of Judges, it's probably the darkest time in Israel's history. They have no king. They're incredibly weak. They're fighting each other in civil war. And the nation states around them are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. They don't turn to God. They say, instead, we want a king. We need a king to rally us and unite us and bring us together. And Samuel, who's one of the last judges, wise and old, when he hears this cry from the people, he, he breaks his heart. And he says, why, a king, you don't get it. You've totally missed the boat here. And God says, give them a king. They've been rejecting me as king for centuries. Give them a king. And so the people and God and this kind of this premature idea that they weren't ready for they look out and they find this guy named Saul. And he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And he's well-to-do. He's well-known. And he's big and he's strong and he's beautiful and he's handsome. And he looks the part of a king. Exactly the kind of king you think you would need. And when it comes to his kind of his coronation where he's going to be appointed, they can't find him because he's 
hiding behind some bushels. And this guy becomes Israel's first king. Too early, too premature, out of timing, out of step. But he's, he's given God's blessing. And Samuel says, if you do what God says is king, God will bless you. If you don't, God's not gonna, he's not going to protect you. And he warns the people, you wanted a king, now you're going to pay for what happens. Your sons are going to be conscripted. He's going to take your money. You're going to be taxed. It's going to be very different than you think it's going to be. People say, we don't care. Saul says, sign me up. And Saul becomes king of Israel. And he is basically a disastrous failure. He can't follow through with God. He lacks the courage. He lacks the morality. It's just not working. So God says, Samuel, there's another person. David, the youngest son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah, his heart is good. Let's, he will be raised up to be the next king of Israel. Now David is the guy who kills Goliath, and David is the guy who fights the bear, and David is the shepherd king. But as David gets older, and, it's, and Saul realizes that David is the next appointed king, Saul gets really jealous and he literally takes to hunting him down. He goes to the wilderness with his men, leaves his home, leaves protecting the border simply to hunt down the young man he's jealous of. And this goes on for years. And then one day, David is hiding in a cave with some of his men, like a fugitive. And Saul just so happens to come into the very same cave to go to the bathroom. And David's men see him. They say, what on earth? God has literally brought this man to you in the darkness of a cave. And he's going to the bathroom. Kill him. This is just, you've never, you'll never be given an easier chance to take out your enemy. Go for it. Saul's doing his thing. David slinks over like a cat, brings out his knife, but he can't do it. So he cuts off a piece of his robe. Saul leaves. David is moved. I'm sure he's shaken. I've never killed the person before, but I imagine you don't feel good when you're about to do it. His adrenaline's probably pumping. He's probably like, sweating and, you know, nervous. He's probably like, oh boy, that was, that was a really weird experience. He's, tr he's trying to process on the fly. What just happened? Did I just disobey God by not killing Saul? Did I obey God by, by not killing Saul? Saul gets up and he leaves. He goes down back to his men and then David is moved. He's compelled to confront Saul and hold up this piece of cloth. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Saul sort of repents at this moment. He realizes how vulnerable he was. But Saul being Saul, he's wishy-washy, he's flippy-floppy, and he returns to being a bad king. And eventually Saul fails in battle, and eventually Saul suicides. He falls on his own sword, and his reign is over. And it's a failure. His kingship is nothing more than a failure. 
of inconsistency, immorality, jealousy, mismanagement. And it's a weird name to call your Hebrew son. I don't know many Saul's, but it's a weird name choice. Think of a big failure in your family lineage or our nation's history. Would you choose that name for your child? Maybe. But there was a little boy born in Tarsus, and his Hebrew parents decided to name their son Saul. Kind of an odd name. When, he, when, when these two Hebrew parents, you know, 1,500 years later, hold their baby boy from the tribe of Benjamin in Tarsus, they look down at their boy and they say, we're going to name him Saul. Saul of Tarsus, of the tribe of Benjamin. And it's interesting because Saul of Tarsus has a lot in common with his namesake. Saul of Tarsus is from a well-known family. He's from a wealthy family. He's trained. He's educated. He, he grows up in the school of the Pharisees. And, is, and is, he's one of those people that you caught early on that, boy, you're, you're smart, Saul of Tarsus. You read well. You speak well. You're highly intelligent. There's like a, a fieriness about you, Saul. And, and this, this young man becomes a higher-ranking student. And in the, the school of the Pharisees, he actually kind of climbs up to be in the school of Gamaliel, who was the leading Pharisee in all of Israel, in all of Hebrew thought and culture. He's taught by the very, very best. He's a protege of the very, very best. That's how smart Saul of Tarsus is. But Saul of Tarsus is a lot like his namesake and that he can't quite see what's happening in front of him. And like Saul, the king, there's an old man in his life, Samuel, who gave a warning to, to, king, to king Saul. He's basically, Samuel says to King Saul, don't get in God's way. Go with the flow. Trust God where he's leading you, and you'll be blessed if you pursue your own vanity and you pursue your own stuff, you're going to be cursed. It's not going to work. It's not going to work out for you. But King Saul doesn't heed Samuel's warning. And Saul of Tarsus doesn't heed Gamaliel's warning. Because when Saul was a, now probably in his 30s, 30s or 40s, this movement had come afoot. These Jesus followers these Christians, these Christ-like people who are part of the way, there's this idea bubbling up in Jerusalem that this prophet, Jesus, had done all these great things and a lot of people recognize him as akin to an Old Testament prophet, but, but now they're saying more radical things, like he came back from the dead. Well, people don't do that. People don't rise out of their tombs. And they're saying crazy things like this, this Jesus who rose out of the tomb was actually the Messiah. He's the chosen one of God to lead Israel out of darkness. But that's not quite right because this Jesus 
never held a sword. He never called anybody to arms. He never even tried to enter the palace. He never confronted Caesar. He never said anything about politics. Saul of Tarsus is not impressed with Jesus. Saul of Tarsus is actually so smart and he's so politically aware of what's happening. Saul says, if these Jesus followers aren't stopped, we're in serious trouble. Because Saul remembers that march of empires, that is well ingrained in kind of like Jewish Jewish mentality, the Jewish thought at the time of Saul of Tarsus, when he was a leading Pharisee, this idea of being separate from culture and being preserving God's way was so ingrained in their, in their mindset and with reason. For hundreds of years, those empires have crushed their, their people. It had only been 150 years before that Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the Seleucid king of the Hellenist Empire, which is basically a Greek king, walked into the temple and set up those altars. And for three years, he burned pagan sacrifices on the Jewish altar in the Jewish temple. And his job, or his conviction, Antiochus Epiphanes, was actually to stomp out Jews from the world entirely. He hated the Jews. He was not like the Persians. He was not like the Babylonians. He wanted to Hellenize the whole world, make the whole world Greek, and crush everything else, particularly the Jews. He irritated them on purpose. And this king's name actually means God manifest. That's what Antiochus Epiphanes means. So God manifest king walks into God's temple and puts pagan sacrifices on the temple of God, in the, in the altar of God. Totally blasphemous. So the people in, in, in Israel revolt. And when Antiochus Epiphanes returns, he slaughters 40,000 Jews in, cities, in the city of Jerusalem. And this leads to a, this leads to a war. The Maccabees, it's like a, a band of brothers, a band of a father and a team of brothers, set guerrilla warfare on the Greeks, and they actually reconquer Jerusalem. And they actually give it independence, sort of, for about a hundred years. And that only ended when Herod the Great took over the throne and took out that last, the last remnants of that, that hundred-year dynasty. And so Saul of Tarsus is very, very, very aware of both his national identity and the surrounding geopolitical tension. And he knows you can't go around saying that a God king has raised back from the dead and the Messiah is here to liberate Israel from Roman occupation. You go around with that message, guess what's going to happen? By this point, the Jews are so They're like piano strings, ready to just snap. The tension is so high. There's no margin of error. Saul of Tarsus knows this. And so Saul of Tarsus 
unlike David, has no problem. He ignores his mentor. And he has no problem standing at the stoning of Stephen, holding everybody's coats. As Stephen, who is a Christ follower, is pelted to death with stones. Some people think that Saul is actually in charge of this. He's been given this job. And what this does is when Stephen dies, it begins mass persecution in the Jerusalem church. And now Saul of Tarsus has been given the job of rooting out these Jesus followers. And so he goes. Luke says, he goes wild. Saul just went wild. Devastating the church. Entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail. And he's specifically targeting the Greeks, the Greek Jewish converts who now profess Jesus. And he's rooting them out with the backing of the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisee movement, and the high priest, and the guard. He roots out the early Christians. Because like his namesake, Saul can't see what God is actually trying to do. There's always parallels in the biblical scripture. There's always stories that you can say, ooh, that sounds really familiar. And that's not an accident. Some of that's on purpose. And this story really strikes me as really, really familiar. That there's something happening, there's conflict happening, something's not working. It's not going the way we thought it would go. And God's actually breathing some new life into a new direction. And there's some people who see it. And they give wise words, and they're usually differentiated. They're not anxious. They're calm. And they say, I think you shouldn't get in the way of what God is doing. Because I think this is where God is leading. And there are others who say, no, 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 no. I'm going to preserve what I have. I'm not going to make amends. I'm not going to take responsibility for where I failed. I'm not going to see where, where God is. I'm not even going to validate the humanity in others. I'm going to stand firm in my convictions and I'm going to fight. And they, revert, they go against the stream of what God is doing. And there's all, often those people that are kind of the martyrs who stand as, as people of peace and say, this is where God is going. Here's the warning. Here's the resistance. I'm here to be a person of peace. David doesn't pick up the sword. He doesn't, doesn't stab his king. Stephen doesn't, as the, the stones are hailing down on him, he doesn't say, how dare you? You're so wrong. You'll see in the end. He says, forgive these people for what they're doing. Stephen, David, people of peace. The Sauls, 
totally missed the mark. And Saul of Tarsus wanted desperately, in his mind for good reasons, to snuff out what God was actually doing, to block that stream, that flow. And what he saw were just a couple of sparks. Boy, if we root this out fast enough and efficiently enough and scare enough people, they'll stop talking about Jesus. But the opposite thing happened. He actually pushed them out of the city of Jerusalem. And those sparks actually just flew into the wider world. And those people weren't afraid of Saul. They weren't afraid of persecution. They were copying David and mimicking Stephen, who was imitating Jesus. And they take that, that peace that, that Jesus gave through his spirit, and they took it wherever they went. They said, you can hunt us down if you want, but we're not going to stop spreading the message of Jesus. And so this spark spreads out farther, outside of this Jewish area, outside of Jerusalem. And it only took a few sparks to, start to set this grass on fire. And it wasn't long before the whole world is aflame with the message of Jesus. And we'll hear about Saul of Tarsus again. But the question is simple. I, I, I'm not a sociologist, though, or a theologian, but I dare say the church is moving in a direction. I dare say the way that we've done things for a long time is not really working anymore. We can't make the same assumptions that we did 80 years ago about people's mindsets, their beliefs. The world is very different, mentally, psychologically, socially. And I think that God is actually moving the church in a new direction. And this is not the first time this has happened. This is not the second time that this has happened. This has happened over and over and over again. And you could take this, this parallel, you could take this pattern of Saul, King Saul and David, and Saul and Stephen in the New Testament, and you could take those simple, that simple pattern and just plunk it down on all kinds of movements where God has been active. Because it's really easy to resist and hold on and be scared, and not trust. But I think we're being pushed in a different direction, in a new way. And there are people in this room who are the Samuels, the Gamaliels, who say, you know what? Don't, don't get in God's way. Why, why resist God? Be open to where he's leading I don't want to say that there's souls in the room. That's not up for me to decide. But I have to ask myself, am I a soul? I'd rather hold on and fight and hunt down the things that I don't want 
because I'm too afraid or too ashamed or too prideful to accept where God is going. We all have the challenge or the invitation, rather, to be the Stevens, the Davids, the people of peace. To be those little sparks that can spread around the whole world with the message and the person of Jesus to bring literal peace to the world. So my question is very simple. Where are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Maybe more importantly, who are we as a church in this story? And where is God leading us forward? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you came and you died and uh, you defied logic and reason and science and everything that the ancient world could understand, everything that we could even try to understand today and that you didn't stay dead, that you came out of the tomb, that you walked among us. I thank you that you sent your spirit to refill us, to make us new humans, new creations that we could commune with you I thank you that you are the king, the king of the whole universe, and and your kingdom has already come, and that your kingdom is open and generous and peaceful, and a kingdom of love and forgiveness, and a kingdom of peace. And I, I pray that even now that we would embrace our calling and our invitation to be people of peace in your kingdom that we wouldn't be afraid of where you're leading us, where you're, where you're pushing us, where the, where the river is moving, that we would trust you, that we would go with the flow, that we'd heed the warnings and the wisdom of those around us, that we'd resist the impulse to preserve and protect and worse, to hunt. Jesus, we know that you're with us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that even in in these stories there is repeated over and over and over an offering to repent, an offering of grace and mercy to the most undeserving of people. And so we thank you for that. And we ask that we would go now as, as people of peace into the world. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.